0: Cheaper than our producer's underage system. Edgier than the stuff shown on late night television. Newer than Kim Kardashian's X. Live from Orlando, it's Crazy Train Radio. now being recorded. Folks, host Don Solo The Croc again. Actually got an interesting interview here because coming up this weekend out in Waterloo, Iowa, this man is getting a Frank gotch Award for Luthez Hall of Fame. Jump in Jim Bernzel. You probably remember him either if you're an older fan from the AWA or most people remember him from the killer bees tag team. Jim, what's going on?
1: Adam, uh, not much. It's been a real busy week. Uh, I'm looking forward to going down to Waterloo and I've done, oh, I don't know, two or three different uh, radio interviews. So it, it'll be fun. I'm going to see some of the guys, uh, some old contemporaries of mine and uh, uh, my wife and son are going to be down there and uh, some of my former teammates at the University of Minnesota. So, Hopefully, uh, it'll be a a real nice event.
0: Nice. So, when did you find out that they wanted to give you this award?
1: You know, I got a call, and first of all, I thought it was a joke. And then, um, this Kyle Klingman, who I think is, uh, I believe he's a board member or he runs the museum, called me and told me that I was going to be inducted with uh, the Frank Gotch Award, and first of all, I thought it was a rib, and then uh, <laughs> he went on and on, and then uh, then he explained to me, you know, who was going to be inducted and, and followed up with an email, and actually, I really, <laughs> I didn't believe him until I saw the email. So, um, yeah, that was, I don't know, a couple, probably three, four months ago, so I was excited about it.
0: Well, obviously, yeah. we'll throw a little history out there real quick, Jim. Uh, for those who don't know, definitely got to do your research on Frank Gotch, who was a professional wrestler in America here of German ancestry. But he was also uh, great with freestyle, but also popular as a uh, professional wrestler as well. But anyway, Jim, uh, to be uh, given Frank's award is definitely a special honor for sure. And like you said, you definitely have some uh, interesting uh, classmates this year.
1: Yes. Well, I was real disappointed that uh, Rick uh, Flair is not going to be able to be there uh, or Bill Watson. Uh, I don't know if many people know it, but Rick was in the same Vern Gagne train class that I was in 1972. Uh, We also had uh, Kenny Patera. And uh, the the Iron Schnook, uh, Vaziri.
0: <laughs> and don't forget your uh, tag team partner, uh, Yes, Great Guy Yes,
1: and then uh, a former NFL linebacker from the Denver Broncos, who was a great Minnesota athlete, Bob Ruggers, who wrestled for about two or three years, and then he was in that plane crash in uh, Wilmington, uh, I think it was Wilmington, South Carolina, and broke his back, and he he didn't wrestle again. So. Yeah, so it was, you know, I was hoping to see Rick, and I know uh, Rick's been through some real tough times with the loss of his son and and some other uh, problems, but, uh, you know, he's a screwball, he's a great guy, I love him, and, uh, you know, he is uh, professional wrestling today.
0: Well, got to add, since you brought it up, uh, and obviously we, we, we were disappointed to hear about it, the, <clears throat> the loss of his son and all, but back in camp and everything else still the years was Rick always a screwball like that
1: well he sort of was you know i mean he if there was anybody who fit uh like a duck to water in the in this business of professional wrestling it was Rick he uh, as soon as as soon as we started uh, you know i knew that he was going to be a, a a big star because uh, he just could project himself, and he had this persona that, um, you know, he just sort of lit up when when he became uh, the nature boy, and, you know, he left Minneapolis in late 72, never came back, and, you know, he was down in Charlotte, and, and I, I went down to Charlotte for the Mid-Atlantic in 1979, and he was huge, you know, and um, he, you know, he lived that life, and, you know, you can... You can spend, 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 but you know sooner or later you're going to have to save, save, save. Otherwise, you're not going to have anything left. And uh, you know, Rick was the epitome of good, uh, of a great time. You know, I mean, everybody around him had a great time.
0: Well, beans, and obviously the whole interview is not about Rick, but uh, yes, since you mentioned about the saving and all, but best line I ever heard was re- retold to me recently that they heard from a. Somebody of the generation or two before yours, Jackie Fargo, who we just lost. Yes, it's not. I know Jackie. Yeah, and Jackie uh, would always tell some of the kids he worked with and brought into the business. A kid, it's not how much money you spend or how much money you make; it's how much you save.
1: Exactly. I heard that too. I, I you know, and then I also heard Ray Stevens used to say, uh, "I'm not here for a long time. I'm here for a good time."
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. And, so and Ray, Ray, and Ray Stevens Ray, was another
0: character in himself, that's for sure.
1: Oh, he was. He was probably one of the greatest natural talents that I ever saw in the ring. And uh, I remember he, he told me one time. He said when he was first married, he he told his wife he was going to go out for some bread, and he said he came back two weeks later, <laughs> and she was well, embarrassed. okay.
0: Uh, and you know this guy well that I'll mention here since you brought up Ray Stevens and funny Ray Stevens stories, Bobby Heenan. Oh, incredible. Uh, and I'll Bobby never forget he- that. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, well, I go would ahead, have... I know you did.
1: Uh, Bobby, to me, you know, people ask me, and if I have a little extra time in my uh, acceptance speech, I'm going to mention this, that, you know, people ask me who was the greatest guy I w- was ever in the ring with, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, Bobby lives in in Largo, Florida today, and he's, you know, for the past five to seven years, he, he you know, he had uh, jaw cancer and mouth cancer, and it's pretty deformed. He has no lower jaw. He can't talk. He's fed through his stomach. Um, he, the, the worst thing about it is he can't talk because he was a brilliant guy. Probably, if you put everything together, best timing, uh, incredible heat getter, incredible manager, incredible uh interview. Uh, Bobby was the greatest. He was he was phenomenal in the ring. Uh he delivered every night. Um, the the people loved to hate him. And um you know, it was a shame that, that now in his later years, you know, thank God he's alive and uh I I email uh his wife Cindy um, a couple times a month to see how he he's doing, and then actually, uh, Adam, I have a my mother in law lives in Port Charlotte, so we go down there a couple times a year, and I always go up to see him. And uh, yeah, he's he's just a wonderful guy, and uh, you know, I I just love him. I can't see enough good about him.
0: Yeah, Bobby was one of a kind. But uh, the, what we, going back to what. Uh, I was going to tell you the little story that he told us years ago, told me years ago, uh, when I was talking to him at an event. And he brought up Ray Stevens. Somebody, you now there was probably four or five of us, you know, you know just sitting around bullshitting. But they were talking some of the old war stories at the sh- backstage of the show. And Bobby says about, somebody asked Bobby about Ray Stevens. And he says, let me tell you about Ray. Ray is the type of guy that would tell you, would ask you how old were you when you had your first lady I don't know I was 12 Wow, you're that young what would you guys do I don't know I was too drunk to remember
1: (laughs) that's the truth
0: yeah 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 he was
1: he was he was incredible Uh, I remember one time he was up here and he was tagged with Nick Bockwinkle and uh, Dick Murdoch and Dusty Rhodes were up here, and this was in the early '70s. Oh. And Dick and Dusty and Ray were out all night and something. And they had these damn uh, um, what were they? They were sort of like uh, road bikes, or uh, not road bikes, off-the-road bikes, dirt bikes. And Ray, somehow or other, they were they were drunk, and they, he got uh, driving, went around, and he did something, and. The damn thing came down on his calf, and the exhaust pipe burnt his leg, and I mean, burnt his leg bad. It was all blistered, and that son of a gun wrapped that leg up, and he worked two or three days in a row, and uh, you know he was in pain, and I'm I'm sure he took something for it, but he, he actually the skin was peeling right off his uh, his lower uh, calf, and he never said a word about it to anybody. Never, never complained or nothing.
0: Oh, yeah. And, you know, obviously some, some of the guys you've worked with, we could sit here telling stories about those guys, that generation, all day long. Let's yeah. actually bring this back into you a little bit. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> obviously, like you, like we mentioned earlier on, when we were talking to your early class there uh, with Flair and Ganye and Sheiky Baby and whatnot, yeah. what you knew Greg uh, through your college years, so I don't think you went to the same school. You were actually very well known for your high jump. Uh, was what we read true that you actually jumped at a 6.7 in an unsan- unsanctioned meet?
1: Actually, it was a little higher. It was about 6.7 and a half. And I actually did it on my fourth attempt, and you're only allowed three. But uh, I wanted to do it. I wanted to try it one more time, and I made it. But I, I jumped 6.6, six, and I did the old-fashioned, uh, which was a dive straddle. Wasn't the Fosbury Flop? Um, Dick Fosbury came around in 1968, and I had already been high jumping for a couple of years. So, uh, even though you know almost all the high jumpers today do you know the Fosbury Flop, I just was too tight and you know to <laughs> to try to learn that <laughs> at age you know probably 18 or 19. Uh, when I got to college, uh, you know, I just thought, well, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And, you know, I added weight uh, for football. So uh, my my track coach over at the university told me I was the heaviest high jumper he ever coached. <laughs> and I weighed about 215 then. You know, oh,
0: well, I, well, how much are, for someone who jumped for years, both in high school and college, uh, like you said, you put on some weight for that and all, uh, how difficult was the change with, a little heavier and whatnot over time, there. Would you jump in?
1: You know what? The only thing that I knew that it affected me was it put, it put an awful lot of pressure on your patella tendon down by your knee. You know, over your knee there, they have the patella tendon in my takeoff foot, which was my left foot. You know, you'd plant that heel and then you'd rock up and you'd just push as hard as you could. And uh, I remember. I had to have, I think, my sophomore and junior year in track at the university. I had to have cortisone shots because uh, that uh, patella tendon flared uh, up on me, and it was, you know, it was a result of just being too heavy, you know. To, you know, I when I was in high school, I weighed 180 pounds, so it's, you know, you put on 30 pounds, and that's going to make a little difference. Uh, in your jump, although my um, vertical jump in, uh, my lift increased about three and a half inches <laughs> in college, so you know I, the the strength and the weight, you know, was was good there.
0: Uh, yes, that's true. Well, what led you to actually look into going in the Vern Dynamics camp? Which also, for many people who don't know, that's obviously they're familiar with the AWA and Vern's training camps, but and you can correct me on this, but is it true that uh, Vern's camps actually weren't every year? They'd be like every three or four years that he would
1: yes. bring a group in? Yeah, the, I think there was a couple years of uh, layoff after ours and then Rick Steamboat came in there and uh, Buck Zumhoff was in there and then they had a couple other guys. And Yeah, he didn't have one every year, but it, you know, it was uh, Actually, what happened was Greg and I were freshman walk-ons at the University of Minnesota for the football team, and Greg was a quarterback, and I was a, ri- a wide receiver. And we did extremely well together. As he, you know, when he was, I was on his team, and he would be, you know, passing the ball, you know, and we were clipping down the, the field, you know, making uh, good gains. So we became good friends. Our sophomore year. Uh, they moved him from quarterback to defensive back, and Greg only weighed about 165, 170 pounds. And at that time, the Big Ten was a run offense uh, conference. And, you know, I mean, you had 210, 220 pounds, 230-pound pound running backs come flying around the, the end, and Greg would have to come up. And so Greg wanted to play quarterback, so after his sophomore year, he transferred to Wyoming. So I sort of lost trust, uh, you know, track of him. I stayed at the university, completed it uh after my senior year at the university. I didn't get drafted or anything. I went and played semi pro football in the fall of nineteen seventy one in uh, Manitowoc, Wisconsin with a team called the Manitowoc Chiefs. and they had they had about four or five teams and it was a semi pro league and there was a lot of kids that were from college and there were some guys that had one or two years NFL experience, and it was sort of fun. Uh, And they moved me from split end to tight end there. And from there, I got an invitation to a Washington Redskin tryout camp. So I went down there the, the following spring and went down there for three days. Didn't make it. You know, I was actually too slow for a wide receiver and probably too small for a tight end. So I came back home, went back to school, and then Greg had called me because Ken Patera was just coming back from the Olympics, the Summer Olympics in Munich, and his dad was going to have a, a wrestling camp, and he was going to have Kazro Vaziri, who was the Iranian, you know, freestyle uh, Greco-Roman, uh, you know, champion, and then Bob Bruggers, the ex-football player, and then Ric Flair. So he just asked me if I had any interest, and I thought, well, I probably won't get another chance to play football. I've got nothing else going other than, you know, i got 30 credits left to graduate from the uh, College of Education, so I I thought, well, I'll try it. So, you know, we uh, started that late fall, I think it was uh, early, late September, early October, and um, it was six days a week, uh, six to seven hours a day, and... Billy Robinson, uh, you know, beat the shit out of us every day, and then at the end of the day, Vern had come there after we'd been there for four hours and then jump on us and tie us all in knots. So uh, that went on for uh, six or seven weeks, and then finally I had my first match, and it was December twenty seventh, 1972, and it was in Moorhead, Minnesota, and I, had, uh, I was scheduled to wrestle a guy named Dennis Stamp, who was trained by Vern about two or three years earlier, and we wrestled in Moorhead, and we had a 15-minute draw, and I was so tired, I came out of there, and I was very disappointed in my first match, and I remember coming into the locker room, and, you know, I was immature, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing, and I kicked the dog on garbage can, and Dusty Rhodes came up to me, and he said, Jimmy, just relax. He says, you've got a long career ahead of you. And that was
0: and it. Coming from uh, Dusty, you know that means something, so. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, he was a character, too. He, you know.
0: Well, you know, again, yeah, he's, he's one of those guys you could sit there all day telling Dusty stories. But Yes. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned a guy there uh, with your first match, Dennis Stant, which yep. most people would actually remember, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what side of the fence you lay. Uh, remember him from Beyond the Mat, being a friend of Terry Funk's. But Dennis, how good in the ring was he? Actually, would you say?
1: Well, you know, it was just my first time, and I was green as hell. And you know, I'm sure that he was, you know, very, you know, adept in the ring. Plus, he had such a great amateur background, you know. And you know, he'd got that Texas style. Everybody who went to Texas and 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 were around the Funk's all had. Adopted a little uh, mannerisms, you know, of you know whether it would be Dickie Slater or Bob Orton Jr., you know all those guys, and, and Terry Funk was another uh, incredible uh, individual, you know. I mean, uh, all those guys were were such big influence on all the all the guys that started in the the '70s. You know, uh, Dickie Slater and myself, and, and Bob Orton Jr., and uh, not so much Greg because Greg. Ganya, you know, sort of patterned himself after his dad, pretty much. But um, you know, and 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 Jack Briscoe and Jerry Briscoe. I mean, there was a there was a lot of young talent that um, uh, you know came or, came around early, and and you you sort of would uh, pick a little bit of their style and sort of add it to your repertoire.
0: Well, let's jump up a little head or a little bit here to where you start tagging the first time with a. Greg Gagne, and you end up winning the titles in a, AWA against uh, Lanza and Duncan. What can you say, who was actually managed, if I remember correctly, uh, a guy we mentioned earlier, Bobby Heenan.
1: Yes. Well, it was, okay, go ahead.
0: <laughs> no, go ahead. You get well, with it. It,
1: it was, you know, actually, uh, Greg and I had wrestled uh, Bockwinkle and Stevens when they were champions, and then they lost the belts. I can't remember what happened. But then Duncan and Lanza uh, won it. And then Greg and I had a little feud with them. And, and you know, anybody that was uh, managed by um, Bobby at the time had a lot of heat on him. And Bobby duncan was, was uh, very good in the ring. Jack Lanza had good timing. Jack Lanza was sort of uh, a Texas-type interview. Um, and, you know, the great thing about the AWA, Adam, was that there was about 10 to 12, maybe 14 guys there, and I've said this so many times, you know, being, you know, when you first start, and you start in probably the best territory you could possibly be in, because, uh, because there was only 12, you know, or 14 guys, everybody knew their position, Everybody made good money, and you didn't work every single day. You don't only work four times a a week. So you had two or three days off so you could enjoy yourself, you could enjoy your family, you know. And this wasn't the case um, in New York. You know, in New York, and I'm jumping ahead right now, but when I went to New York in 85, Brian Blair and I, we wrestled 27 days a month three and a half years straight i mean people didn't realize they had you know vince had 60 guys and he ran three towns a night 20 guys in each town and he just put every it was like they they took a automatic uh, gun and shot every doggone city in uh, the united states because every you know we went you know you, you get two weeks of plane tickets and you might start off in L.A., and then you'd go to Houston, and then you'd go from Houston all the way up to Vancouver, and Vancouver to Washington, and Washington to Spokane, and then, and then you'd work your uh, way down L.A., and then you'd wind up down in Louisiana and down in Florida, and then back in New York. I mean, you, it was hard to remember where the hell you were the night before.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing we heard about that time period, work in New York, that There wasn't any consistency as far as where you went schedule-wise.
1: No, there wasn't. And Vince, you know, where, you know, before when I started, there was like 23, 24 different promotions throughout the country. And when Vince started, you know, sucking up the talent in, in 82 after Hulk left the AWA, and then so many guys, you know, got. You know, more or less, they thought, "Well, hey, if I'm going to be in wrestling, I'm going to go for Vince because nobody can compete with his TV." So pretty soon, there was no place to go, and and Vince had completely different philosophy of wrestling than the old time uh, wrestling promoters like Vern and uh, you know Bob Geigel and and Watts and Eddie Graham. You know, they 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 had the good and the bad. But they they more or less tried to legitimize you know wrestling as far as a contest. Where Vince didn't give a, a rat's ass about that. All he cared about was projecting a superstar that he could uh, uh, glean money from in in royalties and residuals for you know uh, souvenirs. You know, and that's that's basically what Vince created. There was no rhyme or reason to a match like. Hulk might be out in uh, California one uh, one night, and he'll wrestle, uh, say, um, Paul Orndorff, Mister Wonderful, and the the finish of the match won't mean anything. So instead of building that, you know, town for the next time they come there, Hulk might not come there again for two months. So there wasn't any um, what was continuity. And I'm sure well, you guys have talked about that in terms of, you know, promotion oh, yeah. and et, et cetera. And, you know, building building uh, an audience to keep coming back, coming back, coming back for uh, either a crescendo, whether it be a championship match or a cage match or a strap match or something like that. You know, uh, something of a blow-off where, you know, at the end of that, well, then something new is going to start. So uh, Vince didn't believe in any of that.
0: Well, obviously you've mentioned him a couple of times here, because uh, of being in the AWA and going to work for Vince. What kind of relationship did you have with Hulk?
1: You know, Hulk and I—I I remember when when Terry came to Minneapolis. He and I were good friends. I'll never forget. I invited him over. He was—he came here in sort of late fall, and he set this territory on fire. I mean. They brought him in as a heel, and the people loved him. I mean, he was beating two guys on TV. Uh, he he drew incredible houses, record houses for like twelve, thirteen months. And I think it sort of bothered Vern's ego that uh, people, you know, who were accustomed to Vern being the all-American, you know, athletic type guy, you know, drawing these big crowds, and all of a sudden you have a, you know, a big blonde muscle head you know, who was, you know, athletic. Hulk was very athletic, uh, drew incredible houses. I mean, he was just, uh, the people just loved him. And and he and I, I'll, I'll never forget, I, I, I invited him over to my house. It was cold as hell. My son was only about two years old. So I was making, uh, we were going to have steak and uh, shrimp. So Hulk was downstairs with my little uh, son, Jim, and I brought down some I I think it was chips and some sort of uh, little cubes of cheese. So I was upstairs cooking everything, and I came downstairs, and I said to Hulk, how's it going? My little son Jimmy had put so many uh, cubes of cheese in Hulk's mouth. (laughs) Hulk said to me, Tell your son I don't want any more cheese, you know. And he, his whole mouth was full of these little cheese cubes, you know. But he he couldn't say to Jimmy, that's it. You know, he didn't want to say no, no, no. So that was the first time. And then after Hulk left, it was so cold that night when he couldn't get his, he had this old Lincoln, I can't remember what year it was, but it was probably a 69 or, no, it was later than that. It was probably a 75. And he, he couldn't get the dang thing shifted so he had it in park, and he, he really jerked it, and he got it in low, <laughs> and he couldn't get out of low gear. So he had to drive from White Bear to, to Bloomington, which is about 30, mi- 30 miles at about 30 miles an hour. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah, but and, and then things changed when he went to New York. You know, I mean, he had a lot of pressure on him, and he was, everybody wanted, you know. I mean, Vince, he did this, he did that. He, I mean, he was, uh, he was just, you know, he was a golden goose.
0: Oh, yeah. But was he the same guy to you when you went to New York?
1: You know what? I don't think he could be because, you know, uh, Terry is a very quiet guy. And, you know, I considered him a friend. I still do. Uh, I didn't expect any, you know, big push or anything. All I wanted was an opportunity there, which I got. And uh, I, I think the biggest thing that I noticed, about him that he was in such demand that he, his life, you know, was very compromised by the business. And, you know, there was, he more or less became his own little uh, entity. I mean, they flew him around, and, you know, he didn't have to take uh, uh, the regular planes. They flew around him in, you know, jets, and he got picked up with limousines and it, he had to drive a car. he had a limousine so and then there was a few guys you know that hung with him, you know Eddie Leslie was stuck on him like a bloodsucker, blood sucker. and then um which you know was a good friend of his and then Brian was a good friend of his, and you know he it was just sort of hard uh because he he sort of uh, was segregated in the fact that you know he was the golden goose he stayed at. At a suite, and he stayed at a different hotel for, you know, fan reasons, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, he he became a, a little more far away in terms of, you know, uh, calling on the phone or, you know, having a glass of beer or wine with. So, it was pretty yeah. hard for him to, uh, you know, mix in with the guys.
0: Yeah, like you said, for some uh, reasons, definitely yeah. obvious. Uh, But when you went, since we started talking about New York, how did you uh, make a jump to New York? Did you call them or did they reach out to you or how did that go? Well,
1: here's the deal. Um, Because the AWA was drawing, uh, the, the attendance was going down, the talent was down, and I had figured that I was worth something, you know, in terms that I had been Greg's partner, you know, off and on for 10 years. So I approached Vern, and I, I said, Vern, I said, it's, you know, and at this time, you know, I'd, I'd had a gym for three years. It was called Jumpin' Jim Brunzel's Gym, and it was a small gym, but, you know, I I needed to use some of my wrestling money to, you know, help out making it go, and I went to Vern, and I said, Vern, I said, I realized, you know, things are down a little bit, but I, I really need a, a personal contract from you in order for me to, to, you know, to be free, you know, and to be able to uh, concentrate on working, you know, in the ring and not have all those other things to worry about. And he said, well, how much money do you want? And I said, well, I'd like to have a guaranteed contract of ninety-five grand." And this was in 1985. And he told me right face-to-face, he says, you're not worth it. So I said, okay, so... Within two days, I had I had called Hulk, and then George Scott, who was the booker, who actually fired me in 1981 down in uh, North Carolina, our late 80, was the booker, and he said, hey, Jim, you know, we'd love to have you, blah, blah, blah. I can't guarantee any big spot, but, you know, you'll be in the mix here, and you'll make X amount of dollars. So, so I, I, I called Greg, and I said, hey, I'm going to, uh, to New York, and he says, oh, God, Jim, you can't, you're going to make a big mistake, and I said, Greg, I you know, I have no other choice, so I left and uh, never looked back, and I remember it was June 26th, 1985, and I flew to New York, and then I got in a small plane, and the first guy I met from the WWF was Hillbilly Jim Morris, and we were on the small plane, and we flew to Poughkeepsie, New York, where we did our TV. And ever since then, Jim Morris and I have been exceptional friends. We call each other, you know, a couple times a month, and, you know, he's got his little uh, uh, serious satellite. um uh, uh, you know, country company. there. Yeah, and he's a great guy, and, and uh, you know, he was one of the uh, really great guys as far as a friend that uh, I met in New York.
0: Well, uh, uh, and you mentioned earlier a few minutes ago about teaming with Brian Blair. Uh, yes. Can you tell about uh, when they said I, we want you guys to pair off, and ended up becoming a Killer Bees.
1: Well, Adam, originally I, I was hoping that I wouldn't have to tag team there because I had tag team almost my whole career, and I I wanted to you know just do stuff on my own like I did in the Mid Atlantic. But I realized, hey, if if they want to put us as a tag team, fine. You know, you just had to roll with the uh, waves, and um, they gave Brian and I a great gimmick. You know, first, first of all, we were the killer bees, and then we wore the uh, yellow and black, uh, you know, striped tights, and then I really can't remember whose idea it was. It might have been Brian's, but because we were so close, in size, I had longer legs, of course, but we we're close in stature uh, we We thought, well, we're gonna have these masks, and we'll put these masks on when we get in trouble and and we'll use these masks just like the heel teams would, except we'll be baby faces, so we had one of the greatest baby face gimmicks ever you know to use, and we could and and they didn't take advantage of it Jesus, I remember. Uh, in Buffalo, New York, we wrestled the hearts, and they were the champions, and we beat them on TV with these masks, sw- and the people went absolutely nuts, and they wouldn't let us keep the belt. So, you know, uh, from that point on, I realized that Vince uh, really didn't have any plans for us, and, you know, we were just one of the cogs that made the wheel go round, so, um that sort of you know ate on us a lot because uh, Brian and I you know we worked extremely hard every match and and we had a lot of good matches uh, and you know it was you, you sort of you sort of had your slot there and then you just said well this is where I'm going to be and I'll tell you one time Brian and I were this was in '86 and Brian and I had been together almost a, a year and. We, uh, they were going to open up Australia to the WWF. So Vince had us at TV and he says, geez, I'd like to have you guys, you know, do me a favor and go to Australia for two weeks and open up the the country, you know. And I says, oh, well, that sounds good. And at that time, Brian and I were making about $4,500 a week, which was great money. And, uh, so Vince said, "Well, here's here's the deal." He says, "We're we're we're limited with the guarantee there, so I want you guys to go over there for twenty five hundred a week." And I I stepped up and I said, "Vince," I said, "Geez," I said, "You know, I understand." I said, "But you know, as far as business is concerned, I'm making forty five hundred now." I said, "Why would I want to go there and lose four thousand dollars in two weeks?" you know, to go to Australia. And he says, well, I understand. He says, but I'll guarantee you the next time you go, I'll make you 5000 a week. So and Brian and I said, okay, that's, you know, we we went. So we went over there and we worked with uh, the Sheik and uh, Nikolai. And Vince never booked us again in
0: Australia. So, so we never did get, <laughs> he got us there, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of working uh Sheik and Volkov, uh, yeah. probably your big uh, crescendo was at WrestleMania three. there. Yep. Talk about working that event and something that huge in wrestling history.
1: Well, Adam, it was incredible because there was so many people there. I think people realized it was going to be big, but nobody realized it was going to be that big. And, Cripe, you had, you had all the media there. God, they had people from CNN. They had people from... Uh, Britain there, they had people, uh, two different uh, Japanese television studios, Uh, Australia was there, it was just huge, and uh, the fact is that they had Brian and I again, going against Nikolai and the Sheik, right before Hulk and Andre came out, so the people were getting you know, antsy, they wanted to see the main event, and to be honest with you, the finish that they gave for Brian and I against Nikolai and the Sheik was so bad it just made me sick because it was and and I realized they have to bring Jim Duggan into the situation and you know we had worked countless times with uh Nikolai and and Sheik and had you know pretty good matches and and to have Jim Duggan interfere in the match and then us to be happy that he interfered, and we lose. You know, it, I mean the, the the credibility of that finish was just horrible. And and I I thought, Jesus Christ, what what is he trying to do here? You know. So, uh, you know, the, the writing was on the wall there in terms of how they were going to use us, and uh, we were fortunate, you know, to have a a good position, but. I mean, the finish of the match was horrible. You know, been but I, not good for the bees.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now, if I understand correctly, you actually witnessed uh, that fight that's obviously talked about uh, backstage from the backstage area with Adrian Adonis and Dan Uh Was yep. that the case? And what actually happened?
1: Well, it was in Flint, Michigan, and. Uh, Flint was a real rough town, and we were in a a hockey arena there, so we were watching the matches, and Danny Spivey had been, they brought him in, and he was working with Adrian Adonis, and and Danny was pretty green, and Adrian would would take what they'd call liberties with the young guys. You know, he'd sort of be stiff with them, and blah, 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 and, and kick them hard, or hit them hard, and... Danny Spivey was a tough son of a gun, boy. I mean, uh, well, both guys were
0: tough. We should say, but like yeah, you said, Adrian. But,
1: yeah, Adrian was tough too. But Adrian, you got to realize, was about forty-five pounds overweight. He he really got out of shape. And what happened was, he, you know, was abusing Danny in the ring. So Danny said, "Hey, you do that again, I'm gonna let you have it." Well, in Flint, he, uh, Adrian put the sleeper on Danny and and started choking him so Danny elbowed him and when Adrian let loose uh, Danny Spivey clipped him, knocked him down and then he kicked him and Adrian went out like a light and Jimmy Hart was he looked like somebody cut his tail off. He didn't know what the hell to do. He was jumping on his eyes looked like golf or you know, baseballs hanging out of his head. So uh we were standing back there and I think Bob Orton went in to to help Adrian and they just rang the bell and uh a couple of us got Danny Spivey back to the uh, you know, the baby face locker room and Danny Spivey was just fuming. He said, That son of a bitch I told him, blah, blah, blah. So meanwhile, Danny's in there, and then Adrian comes in, and Adrian's, you know, he's got a cut over his forehead. And he's he's got, where he got kicked in the mouth, his lip is cut uh, vertically, you know. So he's bleeding. So Adrian comes in, and he starts talking to Danny, and he tried to leg dive Danny, And Danny hit him with the biggest left uppercut I've ever seen. And he hit him right smack. I think it was on his, let's see, it was on his right cheekbone. And Adrian went up in the air about a foot and a half and landed flat like a big turtle and didn't move. And he, you know, Adrian's eyes went back and when and then Danny Spivey wanted to kick him. He wanted to put the boots to him, and they finally... And Pat Patterson, who was the agent there, was just going crazy. I thought he was going to have a heart attack. Well, meanwhile, they get we get Adrian up to his feet, and Danny hit him so hard with that uppercut that his cheekbone was protruding through the flesh. You could see the shininess of his cheekbone. He had a big gash over his eye, and his lip was... in. So he got the shit beat out of him, and from that point on, Adrian was never the same. You know, I I think he, you know, he he never was the same in the ring. Pardon? Sorry, Sorry, go ahead. Adrian was never the same in the ring. I think he had, you know, hurt his equilibrium, and I know he left and then, you know, sort of straightened himself out. and. Went to Japan, and then he came back from Japan, and that's when he was in the fatal car accident. But, um, you know, we had lots of matches, uh, Greg and I, with uh, Adrian and Jesse. And and Adrian, you know, when he was lighter was, you know, his timing in the ring was incredible. He was a great worker. But he just got so out of shape, and then he, you know, abused himself uh, so much that, you know, with his habits... You you can't do that and then expect to perform every night, you know. It, it took its toll on them, and it, it was it was tragic, you know, but I think that was what had happened when, you know, guys are on the road every single night, every single night, every single night they're in the bars, you know, they're running around, they're in the bar every night, they're on an airplane every day, and you do that for a couple weeks straight, and, and some guys just can't take it, and they fly off the deep end.
0: Well, do you think, uh, obviously, you hear about people taking advantage in the ring, more so in the older generations and whatnot, uh, like you were saying, what Adrian was doing with Dan. But do you yeah. think Dan held it or did it right as far as doing doing some of the business in the ring as opposed to leaving everything in the back?
1: Well, I think that, you know, he had, he had more or less uh, – said to Adrian, you know, please, you know, he's trying to, you know, say, you know, I, I don't want you to take advantage of me. You know, I'm going to work with you, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, don't, you know, just go off and haul off and kick me and, and try to hurt me, you know, because I won't take it. So I think that, you know, Adrian just didn't think anything of it. He thought, well, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, the hell broke loose and he got shit beat out of him. It was simple as that. Well- well,
0: obviously, you know that that type of thing happens. Because the reason I asked that question, that second or that follow-up there, was because I always heard somebody who's pretty well respected by both the fans and the boys, Roddy yeah. Piper, always yeah. say, "Yeah, I always heard Roddy say when we spoke with him and in other uh, avenues, yeah, you know, as far as personal business, you do yeah. business in the ring and yeah. deal with the personal stuff in the back."
1: Well, that's true, but I think sometimes when when a guy abuses you over and over again, and and you know, some guys just don't you know have a short fuse, and I think Danny was in that situation.
0: Well, here's the thing, too. Have you well have you ever had any issue with uh, somebody trying to take advantage of you early on, or at any point in your career?
1: You know what? I was very fortunate. I never had. Uh, I don't think I ever had anybody. You know, you know some guys that hit you hard. Well, you just hit them, you know, the same way. And I think if you if if you didn't, you know, uh, tick for tat, then they would try to take a, abuse, uh, you know, advantage of you. But I was very fortunate, and you know, I you know, I was certainly was not a real tough guy. I didn't fight with anybody. I you know, I I, I just I was doing my best every day just to you know, d- do the best I possibly could in the ring to get the match over. And, you know, I I, I can really honestly say I had very few fellows that um, I didn't, you know, get along with. So okay. I, I'm not, think well, people I, didn't feel the same way about me, but that's the way I feel.
0: Well, if you don't mind, uh, I actually took a couple of fan questions from our uh, social media outlets and whatnot. We'll wrap this up with three questions, if you don't mind. Okay. First one is taking yourself out of it. Uh, one fan asked, "Who do you think had the best dropkick in the business that you've seen
1: since I've left?"
0: Or no, taking yourself out of it because obviously you had a pretty good dropkick.
1: Yeah, taking um,
0: yourself out of it.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I can't, I can't really tell you now. But I'll tell you who had a good drop kick and didn't use it much and could jump very well was Kurt Henning
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, yes.
1: Kurt Henning used to hold the guy by his hair and jump up and kick him in the chin. I don't know if you've ever seen that. standing still yeah, Kurt could jump real good and and there was a lot of good you know i mean i the timing is very important with the drop kick you know you you want to hit the guy at the height of your you know your vertical uh, leap. You want it. You don't want to drop kick them when you're, you know, down four feet in the air. You'd like to, uh, you know, hit them when you're six feet up in the air. And then, and uh, consequently, you know, I, I I could do that. And the only thing over a period of time, uh, you know, I ruined my shoulders. <laughs> so I had a shoulder replacement a couple years ago, and that was a direct result of breaking a fall with my left forearm when I came down from the drop kick
0: yeah' cause the other person that this fan who asked this question mentioned was, which I thought was pretty good as well, Rocky Johnson, yes, as far as a drop kick
1: oh i i you know what, Rocky, when I was with him, um, he you know he he was so heavy, Christy he weighed about about two sixty five I very seldom i don't think he threw many drop kicks when when I saw him in either Kansas City or uh, Charlotte.
0: Yeah, but they were talking about, as far as total athleticism, like you mentioned with Kurt Henning. there. Just had, even though he was a bigger guy, he was a total athlete there, too.
1: Well, he might have been, but I, I wasn't around to see it as much as, you know, maybe it was in his earlier career. He's doing well now. His, his son has doing extremely well, so... More power Yeah, to he—what
0: did that son ever do? His, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the next question uh, was: in, in your tag team tour, was there a particular guy that you had more fun with and worked better with? Was it Blair or Dany?
1: You know what? It was. It was totally different. I mean, we both had good matches. I will just say that in the AWA, because of the situation, you know, Greg being the son of the promoter. You always had a good match. And and I think that in the WWF you would work guys like, you know, Bob Orton and and Don Morocco hated to work with us. They just hated it. And 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 consequently they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't work as hard as they normally would and they just went through the motions, you know. And 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 granted, they were they were tired and depressed, just like we were. And they, Vince hadn't done that much with them, et cetera. So you know, you can't blame them. But you know, it it we had a lot of good men. I I was extremely lucky, and I and I failed to mention my first aid team um, partner was Mike George in Kansas City in 1973, and um, we did very well together too. So you know, I just wanted to mention them in there, but. Um, you know, I was I was very fortunate that I had, you know, three really good partners. And, and in in our time, we, we did extremely well together.
0: Well, and the final uh, question from the fans, which was an interesting one. It's actually a two-parter, and he was an older fan. Do you have any favorite memories of Crusher? And of all the wrestlers that you haven't worked with, who would you like to work with, then or now?
1: Um, the crusher. Um, I can remember real quick. Uh, there was sort of a, a evening up in Lincoln. Uh, I think it was Lincoln, South Dakota, or Lincoln, North Dakota. And it was everybody w- was staying at the same hotel, and somehow or other, there was sort of a water fight between the heels and the baby faces. And somebody had grabbed the crusher's little uh, Puerto Rican uh, boot and was going to fill it full of water. And the crusher had drank about two or three bottles of champagne. And he saw—I can't remember who the heel was. It might have been Ray Stevens. And Ray was going to fill this uh, probably $150 boot up with water. And crusher he had a cigar in his mouth, and he just—he all of a sudden he just got completely out of character, and he just. Ray, please don't do that. (laughs) So that was a, a it just sort of hit me funny, you know, because everybody was drinking and having a good time. And then there was a water fight and they were going to fill up his expensive boot with water and dump it on him. And and he just got real normal. And probably uh, the person that I would have really liked to work with uh, would have been Jake Roberts. Even though Jake was a contemporary, I thought he was brilliant. He was he was the best worker, um, all-around worker, I think, in the WWF when I was there. I mean, Bob Orton was probably one of the best in the 70s, but that doggone Jake Roberts, he, his psychology, his timing, everything was just brilliant. And I would have loved, I, I made many trips with him. He used to uh, ride with me uh, when we, we'd uh, do the... Arizona and uh, Washington and the California trip, but um, I would have loved to work with him. He was a, a real genius.
0: Yeah, it's a shame because he was someone who has, and granted, he's been doing great recently thanks to Diamond yes, Dallas stage. Yeah. but the thing with Jake Roberts that we always heard on the positive side, and you mentioned it there, was he yeah. always had a good good mind for the business and could oh, he was could probably one of the best agents currently yeah. on the brother. I agree. Well, obviously, again, as we mentioned at the beginning of this, Jim Brunzel is going to be winning the Frank Dodge Award at the Wrestling Hall of Fame in Waterloo, Iowa, this weekend, the 12th and 13th. Congratulations on the award, and uh, keep us posted if anything new is coming on, Jim.
1: Okay, Adam. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed the interview. Take care.
0: All right. Have a good night. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye.